There's easy ways for an attacker to take control of a device. Today on State Scoop's Priorities podcast from Scoop News Group, Michigan's new CSO brings a breadth of vision to the state's cyber program. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities podcast. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world and learn about the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Keely Quinlan, and for Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. The civic tech nonprofit Code for America announced it's eliminating 35 staff positions and making major changes to its strategy. The changes include utilizing cutting-edge technologies for its projects and refining its financial and staffing models in the face of decreasing revenue. The announcement comes amid negotiations between the group's management and its union, which have, in recent months, inched contentiously toward resolution. The group says negotiations are not yet finalized. Plans announced by the New York City Police Department to use drones to monitor large backyard parties over the Labor Day weekend are drawing ire from privacy activists. A representative from the New York arm of the American Civil Liberties Union criticized the department's use of drone surveillance, calling the practice discriminatory and potentially unconstitutional. In response to the complaints, New York City Mayor Eric Adams says that while the NYPD lags behind other police departments in implementing a drones as a first responder program, the city will become a leader in the technology. Dave Fletcher, Utah's longtime chief technology officer, is retiring after serving nearly 20 years in the position. During his tenure, Fletcher oversaw the state's digital government initiatives, coordinated the introduction of emerging technology, and the state's technical architecture program. Next month, Chris Williamson, CIO of Myriad Genetics, will take over as Utah's new CTO. He will continue Fletcher's work, which includes the state's citizen portal, where Utahns can create a single profile to access services across state agencies. You can find these stories and more at statescoop.com and in the links in today's show notes. Michigan has a new chief security officer, Jason Cavendish, the state's former deputy CSO, was appointed to oversee the cybersecurity efforts in Michigan's Department of Technology, Management, and Budget in June. He tells StateScoop about how he got his start in information security, how maintaining a breadth of vision helps build a comprehensive strategy, and what his plans look like for the future of Michigan's cyber program. So I kind of had five or six or so different uh, roles throughout my career. I started out in the Marine Corps, and in the Marine Corps, I was more or less an accountant, but accidentally got into uh, information um, management and system development. So I became a software developer, even though I was really uh, in a financial services environment uh, in the Marine Corps. And uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I continued to pursue software development. So for about the first 12 years of my private sector um, work, I was in software development, working in public safety software uh, systems, all the way up through financial management systems as I kind of started to transition away from software development. And what happened there is uh, the employer that I was currently working for at the time decided that they wanted to get into data warehousing. And a lot of my experience in software development was very focused on database um, software packages and programs. And they asked me if I thought that was something that I could do. And I, I took on that challenge and helped them build a very large enterprise data warehouse that spanned 
50 years worth of their data and uh, about 17 different states of information that helped them work with the University of Michigan and the School of Dentistry and Epidemiology to create new techniques for dental care across um, that profession. So it was really a rewarding change uh, from just doing software development to seeing how you could really make an impact on people's lives and help them with their health care. So uh, through the process of working through that, I learned an awful lot about infrastructure support and IT and the kinds of special things that you need to do when handling this massive amount of data. So I was working with massively parallel processing and very specialized uses of um, so software-defined networking. And that led the leadership that I was um, reporting to to ask if I was interested in taking on a role as the director of technical services for the organization that's working for. And so in that role, I did everything from uh, security uh, department work to uh, Unix, Linux, Windows Server Administration. Um, I ran the data center. I was responsible for the database administration group, which continued on with that enterprise data warehouse. And um, it just really gave me a very wide breadth of experience uh, in an executive role uh, with all those different pieces. And one of the things that happened around that time is we won a federal government contract that required us to have to adhere to a lot of the government requirements for um, information security. And it wasn't something that we had really embraced quite that much uh, at the time. So it was somewhat new to us. There was a lot more requirements than what we had previously ever um, had to embrace. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole process. And so for about three years during that time, um, I worked with the DOD and um, Department of Defense and helped them ensure that the systems that we were providing in support of that contract met their requirements. Um, so having kind of fallen in love with information security at that time, I started to transition out of my executive leadership role into more of a security role, and I became the information assurance architect for that group. I eventually left that particular job and started working for a security startup and got to go around to 35 different organizations over a year and a half and help them with their information security programs. And it's, I kind of call that my information security MBA because I got to work with so many different uh, organizations through that process that um, I learned the different things that work well and things that don't work so well um, for different organizations. And I got to really help them shore up some of those challenges that they were having. Um, I then took a security management role at uh, another organization and helped them with uh, their compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley and some of the key risk register kind of things that affect financial services organizations and understanding not just IT risk, but the financial risk that they encumber and how those two play off of each other. Um, a little bit later from there, I transitioned to another role as an information security manager. And then eventually in 2019, I came to the state as a senior uh, security architect, helping them build out their application security practices and enterprise architecture security work. I mean, that is a lot of experience and a lot of like diverse experience too. 
Um, so from those experiences, what lessons or skills do you think you carried with you into the chief security officer position? Yeah, I think, you know, probably the, the primary thing that um, really helps me in this role is that breadth of vision. Um, I was able to many times throughout all those different roles to catch the vision of the organization and understand where they were trying to go and very quickly try to adapt and figure out what changes we needed to make and be the catalyst for that change to get us to those new heights that we were trying to reach. So I think that's really the, the key uh, lesson and skill learned there. I think also, you know, you can't do it all by yourself. You need other people to help you and finding ways to um, help them upskill and go through cultural change. Uh, I remember a time where we were um, going through a pretty significant change. We were cutting over from a legacy platform to a new uh, distributed platform that we were changing our claims processing system out to. And it was causing a lot of you know, fear and in staff at that time because some jobs that were currently the norm were starting to be transitioned away from, and then there were new jobs coming. And so we went through and, and read the book, uh, Who Moved My Cheese? And that really helped to kind of show everybody, you know, like, the cheese is still in the maze. It's in a different place. We can still get through this together. And, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to take us all together and find a new way to get to that block of cheese that's just in a different corner of the maze now. And so it was very helpful and um, useful throughout the different roles that I've held. I really like that metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, as far as leadership goes, right, before you were the chief security officer, you served as the deputy for a little while. What, if any, differences are there between your day-to-days in each position? Yeah, I think the 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 largest change from the deputy to the CSO role for me is really understanding that, you know, the role that I'm in now is more the salesman role and the, um, you know, brokering conversations with my peers and delegating tasks and delegating the work, but understanding that the how that work gets done really needs to be left to those that are supporting me um, across my organization. And I think that in the deputy role, you are a little bit more operational focused. So stepping away from, you know, it's not that you don't have a strategic focus in the deputy role, but um, you are more operational focused and working specifically with those tasks and how they're getting accomplished and ensuring that they're being accomplished in a more um, significantly um, hands-on way a, a little bit. Um, I think also differences, well, for me, when I took the deputy chief security officer role, a couple of things happened. The then CSO, Laura Clark, almost immediately got promoted to the CIO and CSO role. And so that kind of pulled me and we kind of had a rubber band relationship for a little while where, you know, sometimes she needed to be the CIO. And in those circumstances, when we were both in a meeting, she'd asked me to kind of be more of the CSO role and not the deputy role. So for a long time, there was that, you know, give and take push pull relationship where sometimes I needed to be her deputy and sometimes I needed to be her CSO. And so, I got to kind of learn on the job for a little while um, under her tutelage. So if I was making any kind of mistakes or needing to think about more um, communication or different styles of approaching a issue that we had, or even learning to be more, you know, of a delegator and letting go, um, I got to grow through that before I actually was 
appointed into this position. Nice. So you got to like workshop it a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you were talking about like delegating some of those tasks and like managing the overarching vision. So what are some of your top focuses for the state in the coming year as it relates to information security? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate it. Um, the the top three things that I've really been focused on, even coming from the deputy uh, chief security officer role, are zero trust architecture, development security and operations, or DevSecOps, and passwordless um, access. And those are deeper topics that you know I'll talk to a, a little bit about. So zero trust architecture for us. Um, we really started that journey in December of 21. I was at that time actually in the acting CSO role because Laura was out. And um, we went through an assessment to try to determine what does zero trust architecture mean to the state? And you know, first, a couple of things I wanna say about that. It doesn't mean that we don't trust people. And I think that many times when we talk about zero trust, and zero trust architecture, the first thing that you know listeners hear is that we don't trust them. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. This isn't about a person or a human. It's really about how our systems and the accounts that we hold as employees and staff um, and public servants are utilized and how they can be vetted to access data networks and applications. And so for us at the state, We've done a really good job building out our identity platform, which is known as my login. And we've also done a pretty good job of building out our understanding of the devices that we use to connect to our systems. And so through the pandemic, we really got to be more efficient at that because everyone went home and was no longer in our on-premises network where all of our security protections really lived. And so we learned uh, as we were migrating to that hybrid environment or you know, fully remote environment, really, what do we have to do to protect those individual components? And we found different ways using uh, extended detection and response and endpoint detection and response tools and existing tools that we already had on laptops and desktops that were taken home during the pandemic. How do we protect those when they're not in our corporate network, right? Because it's it's one thing when you're in a corporate network and you can rely on some of the network protections and some of the castle and moat type protections that you would normally hear about or talk about where, you know, you have a castle, you build that moat around it and, you know, you can protect from the intruders coming across the moat. Well, if they get across the moat, they can just, you know, then we have the walls and you can protect from the walls and you got the keep in the center and there's enough things to help stop um, those attacks in their way. Well, as soon as we went home, many of those protections weren't available. And so what Zero Trust Architecture has done for us is it's really let us figure out how do we protect those individual components and make sure that they're resilient on their own before, um, you know, without having to rely on those on-premise systems. So when we went through the assessment, we figured we learned that we were about a 3.2 on a scale of five with regards to our zero trust architecture maturity, which initially we were very uh, critical of ourselves. And we said, oh, wow, we've got a lot to do. We can really improve. But if you think about it, C's get degrees, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I hate to say it, like I'd rather hire somebody with all A's and I did pretty well in school and, and, and got all A's in most of my years. But um, the reality is, is when you ask somebody that's in medical school um, what grades they got, and they say I got skis, 
you still call them doctor at the end of the day, right? And, and they're learning and practicing throughout their career. So, you know, they're getting better. But the point being, we weren't terrible. We were already at a doctor level of, of maturity. And so having that, looking at what do we really need to do to shore up our zero trust architecture, we figured out that the thing that we really needed to do is figure out what that model in the middle for deploying access and managing dynamic access to the data networks and applications that we want to protect needs to be. And so that's our focus for the next year in Zero Trust is really to figure out how do we do that better? How do we make those access controls and dynamic network connections all work more seamlessly so that the users aren't impacted, but the hackers are? And so that comes, that brings me to one of our, one of my mantras, which is, um, you know, easier for the users and harder for the hackers. And that's, that's all enabled through our zero trust architecture. The next piece of that then is DevSecOps. And the reason that DevSecOps becomes very important is because it helps us be prepared to embrace zero trust architecture as we're building new things. So it shifts security left, and this is all very cliche kind of commentary because everyone's saying these things, but we're really doing it. We have a Saddle C program, it's a secure application development lifecycle that works, comes alongside and works with our developers, whether they're our uh, agency services, DTMB agency services-based staff developers or third-party development groups that we work with on behalf of agencies and helps do things like static application security testing, dynamic application security testing, and source code composition analysis, and then brings all those together underneath our Michigan security accreditation process that allows us to evaluate if an application is ready to be placed into production and what security controls have been put in place for that application before it goes live. And so that's been a pretty successful thing that we've been doing. The thing that's new is this idea of how do we do everything as code? And so the everything as code mantra for us is really important because it allows us to scale. Currently, the Saddle C team is made up of about three people. I've got about 127 solution architects across agency services. Those solution architects all support multiple teams. I don't have enough individual people to be able to you know, work with every single one of those teams. So I've got to find other ways to scale that service. And so the idea of as code becomes important and that's where DevSecOps really helps build that out for us. And then finally, passwordless. Passwordless is just the way that we change our access to systems so that we don't have to worry about the kinds of attacks that are very common um, today with just a password and a username. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we um, go through some of the questions that we're talking about today. So as far as like considering all of that and the, you know, the uniqueness of being a different state with its own different like players, what makes the landscape for security unique in Michigan as to maybe like compared to another state? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think we're similar and different at the same time, right? Um, Almost all of the states have various different um, executive branch agencies that support the um, services that their residents and um, population is, are being provided. And so we're the same. We have, you know, at any given time, uh, 19 to 22 different agencies, and, and that number fluctuates. Uh, 
um, as new agencies are created or merged together. And so DTMB in 2002 um, was formed as the single IT provider for all of those agencies. So we have a centralized IT and some agencies don't have that um, luxury. Frankly, it is a luxury for us, but it's also a challenge. Um, you know, agencies want to move fast and do the things that they need to do to provide the services that they're tasked with providing. And sometimes um, DTMB as that central IT provider is seen as, you know, a roadblock or a bottleneck and they want to move quick, more quickly than we can provide. And some of that um, was, you know, the result of the information security team being known as the Department of No. And so we've really tried to change ourselves from that moniker to being the Department of How. And like I said, with regards to the shift left and the DevSecOps, really trying to come alongside our agency partners, as well as our agency services development teams to help them get to where they want to go in a much more effective and efficient manner. Just in looking at DTMB's uh, website and, you know, the cyber tab that you guys have, there are just so many resources available to like residents and state partners, um, as well as the agencies you've mentioned. What do you think are the most important resources and why? So most important resources, um, I guess the first one I will reference is the Michigan Secure app. So what that is, it's a mobile app that's provided by the state of Michigan to residents in Michigan um, to help them secure their mobile devices. And the reality is, is that all of us are on our devices on a regular basis. Um, many of us have our faces buried in those devices to the exclusion of seeing people walk by each other on the street. And so uh, they're very important to how we live and operate in our daily lives. But I don't think all of us take the security of those devices as seriously as we should. They are vectors for identity theft and um, they're also vectors for, you know, your um, corporate networks being attacked because there's easy ways for an attacker to take control of a device. Um, one easy way is to buy out the manufacturer of a particular software that's available in an app store or the Play Store and add malicious content to the device. It's already a trusted application. All I have to do is buy out the rightful owner and start, you know, sending malware to your device. And now I have information about you that you probably don't want me to have. That happened with the Pegasus um, attack that many of us have heard about from last year. So what Michigan Secure App can do is it can help identify when an application is doing something that's anomalous on your device, something that it's not really meant to do or maybe is contrary to what it was reported that it was going to do. And the neat thing about the Michigan Secure App is it does it all without actually sending any data off your device or having to, you know, every all of your information is stays your information. We don't collect anything from it. It's completely all on your device, but it helps you with that protection that you wouldn't otherwise have. The other thing it does is it helps you be able to check phishing links or links that you suspect might be phishing. Um, attacks before you actually go to that website, which can protect you. And then it also helps identify um, potentially malicious wireless access points you might connect to. So, you know, your general coffee shop access point, um, it might be safe, but it can also be spoofed by a malicious person sitting around in the coffee shop and it can help identify when that's happening and, and tell you to kind of stay away. So 
That's the first one. The second one is um, we're providing more and more resources across air, various different demographics and age groups um, about how you can be safe online. And so we're trying to really target not, you know, not just kids and not just young adults or, you know, parents, but also grandparents and, and seniors as well with, with the marketing there from the Cyber Resource Hub. And I think those are really important for residents to know about. We also, though, have the CSO Kitchen Cabinet, Cyber Partners, and uh, MIC3, which are community outreach organizations. CSO Kitchen Cabinet is our public-private uh, partnership, so it's um, various different critical infrastructure um, partners that meet with me on a bi-monthly basis, and um, we share threat information and economic information and all kinds of uh, uh, things back and forth to try to help each other out both in the cyber and in just the business world. So that's a really great group that we have. The other one, MIC3, the Michigan Cyber Civilian Corps, is our incident response offering to local units of government in K-12. So when we see uh, some of them have attacks, they have an opportunity to reach out to the Michigan State Police who can connect them with MIC3 to get some boots on the ground to help uh, in the event of a cyber attack. And then finally, Cyber Partners is another outreach primarily to local governments. And what that brings into play is the state and local cybersecurity grant program, which is a program that um, we've just recently received our approval for our cybersecurity plan to be able to begin to um, issue grants to local units of government for things like developing and enhancing a cybersecurity plan, um, developing and implementing a cyber incident response plan, providing access to cybersecurity assessments and planning services for local and rural communities, and implementing advanced endpoint detection and response. So those are our, our first year projects that we're trying to do under that particular grant program. But as far as you know, cyber resources for the public and our partners, those are kind of some of the things that we're really focused on. So one of the like top issues within cyber, aside from, you know, phishing and ransomware threats is maintaining the workforce. What is the workforce situation like in Michigan and how do you plan on tackling those issues? Yeah, so I think anyone that you ask about workforce in cyber is going to say that we have a negative unemployment rate. We have far more jobs available than we have resources applying for and able to fill those roles. Um, I think that is... That is true in Michigan. I think also there's sometimes an expectation gap. Sometimes there is the idea that um, an individual either is not qualified or is overqualified for a role, as opposed to looking for how to rewrite size the position to be able to attract and hire people that um, could do that work. And so some of the things that we've done at the state is we partnered with a number of different groups. We have a program called NPower that works out of the um, Southeast Michigan area and also in the Lansing area that provides initial training on cyber activities for persons that either have an associate's degree or are looking to transition from one job type to, to cybersecurity. They go through an eight week boot camp. Um, and then they become available to hire as a, a contractor initially, and they provide their given a year's worth of contract um, experience, which then enables them to become able to be hired under our civil service classification rules. 
So that's you know one of the ways that we're bringing candidates in and cybersecurity and infrastructure protection of the state of Michigan has been very successful at bringing in those kind of candidates. In fact, we have six right now that are, are working through and two that have matriculated to full-time employees. So we're really happy with that program. There's also a, a cyber, not cyber patriots, it's a patriots program where um, we're working with Brooksource and they're working specifically with veterans and looking for veterans that are looking to transition into cybersecurity or who have transitioned out of the service and are looking to get into cybersecurity. And they have a similar program that we're working with them. And we have two candidates from that program right now that we're working with um, that's also been successful. And then finally, we have a program with tech systems called Rising Talent. Um, which does something similar. Cyber hasn't worked with them yet, but they've been successful in other areas of IT with a bootcamp style program to help people transition from other job roles into um, IT roles. And we're looking forward to working with them as well. So uh, yes, there's there's definitely that uh, negative employment, negative unemployment rate for cyber jobs here in Michigan. Uh, just like everywhere else, but we're trying to find unique and creative ways to attract talent um, to our ranks. That was Jason Cavendish, the Chief Security Officer of the State of Michigan. You can read more about him at statescoop.com and in the links in today's show notes. Coming up in three weeks from StateScoop, the 2023 IT Modernization Summit, this year's virtual summit takes place on September 19th. You'll hear from more than two dozen leaders in state and local government, as well as higher education, on all things digital transformation. Register now for State Scoop's IT Modernization Summit on September 19th. You can find registration links for the summit in today's show notes and always at statescoop.com. You can subscribe to the Priorities Podcast at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your podcast. While you're there, be sure to leave a review or a rating on the podcast page. They make it more likely that people will find the show. This podcast is a production of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put it together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm Keely Quinlan. Thanks for listening.